Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, as we listen to your word, open our hearts and our minds so that we might better understand and draw ever closer to you. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, and it can be found on page 683 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in the blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan and Kim, for that great children's story. Um, I love the services when all the kids are here. Parents, just be reassured that your kids are always louder to you than they are to any of the rest of us. And they'll be even louder today that they got these wind-up sheep to play with during uh, the worship service. So um, it's like, you know, we just had Thanksgiving. It's like a good, a good family Thanksgiving dinner, right, where everybody's together, all generations from little kids to the oldest among us. Uh, and the kids are just loud and raucous as kids are, but there's a sense of joy and family with it. We love that. I hope you enjoy that as much as I do, and if not, (laughs) if you're new uh, or visiting, my name is Chris, I serve as a pastor here, and we're so delighted that you're here, and the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season that leads up to Christmas. I say this every year, Advent is not Christmas. Now, we decorated yesterday the church building and got it right, and you know, Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart have been selling Christmas stuff since like August or September. Um, there's a danger in getting into the Christmas spirit too soon. And I know that can sound counterintuitive because so much of the world seems so dark and we long for that feeling that Christmas can provide, the peace, the joy, the light. There's just a, and we even have a phrase for it, we call it the Christmas spirit. And that's a good thing and we need that. But it's also really important to observe the season of Advent, which is the season that leads up to Christmas, the light 
Uh, you know there's that old saying, the darkest hour is just before dawn. The darkest hour is just before dawn. The, it's almost as if the darker that darkest hour is, the more gloriously and brightly the light shines when it comes. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We know Jesus is coming. We know that he's coming to make all things new. But in order to make Jesus as, I don't want to say as good a news as possible as we could make him better news than he is, but in order for us to recognize the good news that he is, it's actually really important for us to think a little bit about the darkness too. That will make us long for Jesus more. It makes the payoff that much better on Christmas Eve. Now each of the four Sundays in Advent has a theme, hope, peace, joy, love in that order. So we'll be thinking, we do this every year in different ways, but we're thinking this morning about hope. And these are just as important of themes today as they were hundreds and thousands of years ago when these themes kind of came into being. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say? I mean, even as Susan was, was reading the scripture reading, one of the lines that jumped off the page to me was this, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. Don't we need news like that? That all of the equipment used in war will become fuel for a fire someday. And with the news all around the world, that's, that's good news, isn't it? We need hope and peace and joy and love just as much now as we ever have. So during Advent, we think about these themes, and this morning we're asking ourselves, what does it look like to carry on with hope? even as the world seems pretty bleak and pretty dark around us. I don't think I'd get a lot of pushback in stating that the world seems pretty bleak and pretty dark around us a lot of the time. This is how the Israelites felt too. If you'll notice the very first line of the reading this morning in Isaiah 9, says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. If there will be no more gloom, that just means there's gloom now. <laughs> because let's state the obvious. We know that Isaiah, who wrote this, lived and prophesied during one of the darkest times in Israel's history. And so in a lot of ways, scripture, by naming the darkness of that time, which in this case was over 2,500 years ago, more like 27, 2,800 years ago, can still speak directly into our circumstances today. Now, I'm not gonna give you a long history lesson about why the Israelites were experiencing gloom, but we do need to know one or two key points, key facts. And the basic idea is this, that the Israelites thought that they were, because they were God's people, they were invincible. They thought they could do whatever they wanted. They thought God was basically there to bless whatever they did, they had forgotten that they were actually there to bless God and to follow and obey him. They had a couple of particularly bad leaders, some bad kings who led them astray. And as Isaiah is writing this, there's a, there's a little bit of question, but there's probably about a 12-year period when foreign empires began to come and overrun the Israeli nation. The best example I can think of this the best way I can put this is this. For those of you, and this won't resonate with, with some of us, but it will resonate with others of us. If you were alive during the Cold War, remember the fear of a Russian attack. Now, I know that, that the fear there was really nuclear. It wasn't so much a Russian invasion. It was about a, a nuclear war. But there was some fear of an invasion. 
There are movies that are made about it, kind of hypothetical movies. If you can channel that fear, what if the Russians invade during the Cold War, you get a little bit of sense of how the Israelites are feeling. Their enemies are coming and starting to overrun and ransack them. They need hope. They need hope. And God makes this promise through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I've got hope for you. They need peace, he says, I've got peace. They need joy, he says, I've got joy. They need love, he says, I've got love. And, and he does it, he does it in a number of ways, but this series, we're gonna look at the four titles that God gives to the savior of the Israelites. I'm looking at verse six here, if you have your Bible open. Isaiah says, for us, so he's, he's saying basically, things are gonna get better. And you're always wondering, well, how are they gonna get better? It's one thing to say, like, everything's going to be okay, but another thing to say, prove it, show me. And Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born. Notice, by the way, he says it present, a child is born. Now, Isaiah's writing 700 years before Jesus. And yet he's saying, by putting it in the past tense, he's saying, it's as good as done. It's a guarantee. Even though it won't happen for 700 years, this has been established in history from before time. For to us, a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, and he gets four titles for who we now know as Jesus. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to spend this season, this Advent season, really thinking about those four titles in conjunction with the four themes of Advent that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. Now if you wonder what exactly is a wonderful counselor, this is probably the one that's most foreign to us. We don't really have, and he didn't mean counselor in kind of a therapeutic way like when we think of counselor nowadays. So what exactly does it mean that God will become for us a wonderful counselor, and why does that give us hope when the news around us is so bleak? Now, the Old Testament has a frequent mention of counselors. Counselors are almost like advisors, but advisors is really too weak a word because a counselor is like an advisor, but with, with authority. You have good counselors and bad counselors all throughout. We have instructions for counselors. We have descriptions of counselors. And the unifying theme is this, that in the Old Testament, a good counselor is somebody who is out for the welfare of other people. A bad counselor, a bad advisor, is somebody who is out for their own gain, and they're willing to sacrifice the welfare of other people for their own benefit. That's the simple, simple distinction. It's also worth noting that the word counselor, again, like I said, an advisor is really too weak a word. In Micah 4, another prophet, Micah actually calls counselors and kings the same thing. That's helpful to me. Because it's not just helpful and hopeful that God is going to send us an advisor to help us to do better. But he's actually saying something more like this person will be, yes, they will be trustworthy in the way that a good advisor is. They will speak truth, but he will have the power of a king to make things right. Now here, I want to backtrack just very briefly into Israel's history and show why this is good news for us. And we know it's good news for us by seeing how it was good news for them. If you go way to the beginning of Israel's history, 
as a, as a nation with a king. First Samuel chapter eight. At this time, Israel did not actually have a king. They were ruled by judges. It was a very different political system than ours today. It was very different from the rest of the world. Everybody else had kings. Israel did not have a king. And let me just read for you this excerpt from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as I read this, listen not only for what this says about ancient Israel 20, at this point, about 3,000 years ago, but listen for parallels today. It says, all the elders of Israel gathered together, together and came to Samuel, who's one of their prophets. And they said to him, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us just like all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to what they're saying to you. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. They have rejected me as their king. What God wanted for his people was to be their king. He wanted them to see him as their king. But what do they do? They say, no, everybody else has a king, and so we need, to be, we need to be just like, we need to find our hope in where everybody else finds their hope. We need, to, we need, we need a brighter future, and we think it's going to come by being just like everybody else. There's a little bit of back and forth between Samuel and the people and some arguing. And finally, Samuel, they kind of prevail upon Samuel. They wear him down. And it says he presents their request to God and God answers and says, listen to them and give them a king. God's own people have functionally rejected God. They said, we know you're supposed to be our king, but we're not seeing it right now. And the world around us is pretty bleak and those guys have spears and swords and we don't really even see you. So what good are you going to do, God? Now, a good Jew would say at the time, or even today, or a Christian, somebody who just knows their Bible would say, well, look at the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, and see just how much God has done for you. But the Israelites had this myopic sense, right? They had forgotten the big picture. They had forgotten their history. All they could see was right in front of them. And when you see other countries coming at you with swords and spears, it doesn't seem like getting on your knees and saying a prayer is going to be all that helpful. We want a real king. You and I are nothing like that, by the way, right? We see all of the cares and the concerns in the world around us. We see the market doing weird things that the markets do, and we think, I need to protect myself. And I need to protect myself in the way that the world tells me to protect myself by using whatever, whatever, whatever. God, how can you possibly tell me to be generous and even to be sacrificially generous with my finances? That makes no sense. We go to our workplaces and we see people being, frankly, cutthroat and ruthless to get ahead. And we think the only way I can possibly get ahead and and to, to get the promotion or the raise that I'm after is to be just like them. God, I know you say love your enemies. I love you say pray. I know you say pray for those who persecute you, but I'm just not seeing it right now with all of these immediate concerns right around me. And all the while, God is saying, I'm supposed to be your king. I'm supposed to be your counselor. 
And all the while, we just look to whatever is around us. What's everybody else doing? This occurs even in our mindsets. Are you the type, I wonder, to get like really down about the news cycle and about world events? Like, where's the hope? When we think about God's desire, who says, let me be your king, let me be your counselor, because remember, those terms are almost synonymous. If your hope is in better circumstances, or if your hope is in the next election to fix things and make things better, if your hope is in certain politicians or policies or better social programs, or if we can just do this in the schools, you will be disappointed for the rest of your life. I mean, those things might, you might earn a, a couple of short-term wins, and things might get better for a little bit. But the losses pile up. Those of you who've been with us the longest have seen the most of this. And sooner or later, they will just feel too big because they are. That's the whole point. Anytime any of us looks to, to kind of situations and circumstances on this planet to fix things, to find our hope, we just need to get so-and-so into office. We're doing exactly what Israel did 3,000 years ago. We want a real king God. They banked on conventional social and political circumstances, and do you know what happened? If you read the book of Isaiah, you see it just about got them wiped off the face of the earth. And if it weren't for God intervening, they would have been. So what's the good news? What's the good news? Here's the real good news. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We talked just briefly about this word counselor and how it can mean a king, somebody who can get things done. We didn't talk about so much about the word wonderful. What does wonderful mean? We, you and I use the word just to mean something that's really good, right? How was your day yesterday? It was wonderful. What does wonderful really mean, though? It means filled with wonder. Filled with wonder. And if something is filled with wonder, that means it's so beyond our understanding that you and I can't even wrap our minds around it. It defies our understanding. Something that makes us wonder. How in the world did that happen? And even this word in the Hebrew and Greek that means wonderful, it's a word that's reserved almost exclusively to describe things that God does, not what any human can do. It's a word that almost means miraculous. He will be a wonderful counselor, a wonderful king. What's the most wonderful thing that God could do? How about become a child? Remember, I don't mean wonderful as in like a really good thing. I mean like, what in the world are you thinking? And, and why in the world would God become a child? 
Why would he become human? He didn't just, be, I mean, to, for God to become human is incredible enough. But, like, what, if God had become human, shouldn't he have become, like, a six-foot-seven muscular, you know, like, ugh, right? Like, somebody who's really strong and can get things. He became a child, an infant. We just had a dozen of them piled up here. God became that. Somebody who's needy. Somebody who doesn't understand very much. And not only that, but the truest wonder is this. That the very king whose people rejected him would first let them reject him and then come back and rescue them anyway. Now, most of us, you or I, when we feel rejection in order to protect ourselves, what do we do? We kind of wall ourselves off. Okay, you've rejected me. I'm just going to cut you out of my life. I can't think about it. I... But instead of God saying, well, you turned your back on me, so I'm turning my back on you. No, he said, you turned your back on me. I am chasing you down. And you said you wanted a different king, and you had no idea the kind of pain that you would cause yourself by finding a different king. And I'm going to let you for a while, but I know that you need me as your king, and I will come and be your king. The good news of the Christian faith is this, that when we turned our back on God, God did not turn his back on us, but he chased us down. We thought we knew better than him. We didn't. And he let us, for a little while, go our own way. But then he came, like any good parent would do, right? Any good parent would say, I will do what is best for you, even if it is incredibly costly for me. The truest wonder is this, that a king would give his life for his people. In every other domain, in every other kingdom in the world, people give their life for the king. Name me one other kingdom where the king gives his life for his people. Name me one. And yet our king did. Our king did. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Amen.